Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And Father, we ask now for the help and assistance of your Holy Spirit as we open the word of God. We want to continue in an attitude and in a heart of worship towards you. We thank you for your word, for how it speaks to us and how it instructs us and comforts us and counsels us with truth in a world that's full of lies and in a body, Lord, that seems to so often lie to us and deceive us from within. So we ask that you'd speak truth into our lives this morning. May your spirit give life to the word of God. Bless it as it goes forth this morning. And may your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our individual minister in our hearts this morning. And we look to you, speak to us now, Lord, we ask in expectation in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, is it possible that you may actually be suffering in some way this morning? And is it possible, like me, often on occasion you find yourself as well within sort of longing or we might say yearning for heaven? Well, one of the ways that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit works within us is to help us, number one, in our view of suffering. And the Holy Spirit also works within the Christian to really create a genuine longing and yearning for heaven or for the afterlife. In fact, this next passage we're looking at together this morning is addressing that very issue. Now, just a reminder, Romans chapter 8, as we've been studying it, is a chapter that speaks about the internal work of the Holy Spirit of God who now dwells within, he resides within the life of the believer, the child of God. Again, as we talked about last week, we do not biblically, contrary to what some people want to believe or think or feel, we do not begin life as a child of God. We are created by God, but scripturally, the Bible says there must come a time when we experience a spiritual birth. And when we experience that spiritual birth, we then become a child of God. And when we become a child of God, the very spirit of God the divine nature enters within us and God takes up residence and begins to dwell within he begins to work by his spirit inside of our life and one of the things that he does is to help us in many different ways we're looking at them here in Romans chapter 8 and it is just spoken to us in our last few verses of how in relation to receiving salvation it says that we received a spiritual adoption 
That was how Paul described our salvation in the last verses of becoming a child of God, that we received a spiritual adoption. And then he then told us in verse 17, our last verse together last time, that we also then became heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. With God now as our father, legitimately, spiritually, we now become an heir of God. We stand one day to inherit all the eternal glory that our Father in heaven and his Son Jesus Christ, who we're a joint heir with, possesses, and one day we'll share in that. However, if you haven't noticed, that doesn't come instantaneously. There's a process and there's a season of time where we now still endure in faith on this earth, and we have to do such in patience and in hope and in perseverance until our season on this earth is over. And verse 17 spoke to us in the last statement we looked at together, how in this present time now, it says, if indeed we suffer with Jesus, that we also may be glorified together. Speaking again of how our lives are fully united with Christ, and as a result of that, we share in all of Jesus' experiences. And we talked about, as we closed out last time, how what was Jesus' experience? Jesus came first as a suffering servant, and he will one day return as a glorified king in all of his glory and power. So with Jesus, very simply, suffering preceded glory. Suffering preceded glory. And in the same way, that's our experience as we're one with Christ now. We for a time endure on this earth here and now sufferings in this earthly season, but yet one day we will then experience the glory of eternal life as we're one with Christ. So having just brought up that we will suffer as Jesus suffered, but we also will one day experience glory after this life, Paul then in verse 18 goes on to say this morning, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So after consideration, notice Paul arrives to a conclusion. That, that term there where he says, I consider it literally is a term in the Greek that means to weigh out on the scale. So Paul is not just saying this arbitrarily. He's saying, no, this is something I really have thought about. I've given thought to this. I've given consideration. I've taken the time to kind of weigh this out, he's saying here. He says, I've given consideration and I've arrived at a perspective. And notice Paul arrived at a very healthy perspective, a very helpful perspective in relationship between present suffering and future glory. And he tells us about it here. And in fact, we can notice a few things in this verse, if you would, with me. The first one being rather self-explanatory, but I think it's worthy to draw to our attention that our present experiences and present life will include suffering. Just look at the language of verse 18. It's very direct, but important. He says that there will be sufferings in this, I have it underlined, present time. There will be sufferings in this present time. In other words... Stated rather clearly, it's not abnormal or unnatural for you to suffer in this life. Now, our humanity would prefer that that's not the case, but sometimes we just need to be reminded. It's not abnormal for you to suffer in this life. It doesn't mean something's wrong or you've done something wrong necessarily to experience suffering and struggles and difficulty in this life. Truth be told, this present time here and now 
each person will suffer to some extent in this present time here and now on this earth. Now that applies universally to all people because we all live on a fallen earth and a fallen world because of the curse of sin which took place back in the Garden of Eden with the unfortunate entrance of sin's presence and sin's influence into this world and into humanity there came very clearly the corresponding effects of sickness and disease and struggle and suffering and even death in fact Jesus himself who lived among us as a man experiencing all that we do in humanity on this planet Jesus never did anything wrong Jesus was never guilty of any mistake but yet Jesus still suffered in some extent as he lived among us as a man in the flesh so again Jesus's sufferings were not related to mistakes he made or the fact that he did things wrong his sufferings were directly related among humanity to the fact that he was living among humanity as a man and part of human experience is suffering in this time. In fact, Jesus even announced and somewhat assured that we too will all suffer while in this present time. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That part of this life experience is that each person will endure a fair share of struggle and hardship and trials and letdown and sorrow and grief and suffering now that's true universally for everyone but here's the somewhat unencouraging part for believers we're also on top of universally going to struggle like every person on this planet there are times as a christian when we'll endure some suffering in addition for following jesus because the Bible is very clear in many different passages, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul says it's been appointed unto you to not only believe upon him, but also to suffer for his sake. Jesus said, if they hated me, then they will hate you also. So as a Christian, there will be, as your consolation prize, an extra measure of suffering that you endure sometimes just because you choose to follow Jesus in a world that's not following Jesus. In a very anti-Christian culture, you at times, whether it's with your friends or your family, your criticisms or comments or misunderstood or persecution or unfair treatment, it's going to be a part of the package because you're choosing to follow Christ and you will endure it. But listen, whether believer or unbeliever, no one is immune from suffering in this present time. It's a scheduled part of life's existence in the journey here and now. So that means this, when you suffer and as you suffer, hear me, don't read into it so much. Don't allow yourself to get into the mental gymnastics as you're already struggling as it is to over-evaluate it and then even torture yourself with the mental anguish because you're reading into suffering too much. That just brings added feelings of thoughts and confusion. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. You hear what Peter's literally saying to a group of Christians who are struggling? Apparently, Peter knew what they were wrestling with or were prone to wrestle with. He said, listen, just because you're suffering, don't start to think it's strange that you're suffering. Peter's saying it's really not strange. It's normal. 
It's somewhat a part of the protocol of being on this planet, and it's a part at times that we will endure as we share with Christ and we follow him. I think one great deception among many deceptions, I think one great deception among humanity is that oftentimes people expect and even then strive to obtain a life that is absent from suffering. And they almost have an agenda to do things, whether it's choices they make or paths they take or pursuits or, or even money they'll spend and efforts they'll put forth to try and create an environment and a life that alleviates all suffering. Listen, that's a great deception. You've lost touch with reality if you begin to live that way. And it's one of the greatest deceptions because no matter what you do, what you don't do, how you play the system and make decisions, you'll never 100% be successful at that. Part of life's experiences is enduring certain struggles and sufferings. And one overlooked benefit of experiencing suffering, I think, is to forget that when we experience suffering now, it often serves to awaken and remind us that there is a present life and also an afterlife. Because somehow when we go through suffering, notice he says in our verse, verse 18, sufferings of this present time but then he says there's also glory which shall be revealed see i found in my own life suffering is one of the things that makes this present life distinctively different from the afterlife and going to a place in glory with god where there is no more suffering and it's amazing how as you suffer there's this distinction and this reminder and for me it's almost an added appeal that heaven seems that much more attractive and it's when we're suffering and when we're struggling that something within us causes us to create a thirst and a greater anticipation that, Lord, thank you so much. There's something beyond this. That there's actually something beyond this. And many times suffering can have a benefit whereby it awakens us to think about and to realize that there's actually something beyond this life. And it quickens within us as a Christian a greater desire to go to heaven. So don't miss that benefit of suffering as it adds appeal and appreciation to heaven's glory. Unless, in fact, you, if, if you prefer more suffering, then hell is an option. The Bible is very clear that we can choose where we spend eternity in relation to how we respond to God's offer of Jesus Christ. And if you are someone who's just, this isn't enough, you're just looking for a little more suffering. You're looking for a little more pain, a little more anguish. Well, the Bible says you can choose to be cast into the lake of fire if you reject Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that there for all of eternity... You can be severely tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, of course, I'm being facetious. I would recommend that you don't choose that option. And I would even prefer that if it takes God using suffering hardship to break you down and to humble you to your core, and that's what it takes through suffering to get you to see the need in your life for Jesus and to cry out to God and to lean upon him and to long for heaven, uh, then may God do that. May God even use that because it's much better than ultimately what the lake of fire would offer forever and ever. And again, suffering in this present life, it comes, doesn't it, in various forms. It comes in different measures at different seasons in all of our lives. But the present sufferings we endure, they're not in vain. Suffering does have some productive purposes. It develops character in people's lives. 
When we suffer, the Bible teaches it equips us to have compassion and we're more able to comfort others. Paul says we're able to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And is it not true? You find some of the most compassionate people. You find some of the people who are very good at comforting others and they're people who struggled. They're people who have gone through hardship and therefore they have a sensitivity and a compassion and a care for others. Suffering cultivates humility. It knocks wind out of our sails. And everybody needs a little bit of that because we start life pretty puffed up. And then we puff ourselves up more the further we go and the more we become self-sufficient and successful. And, and, and sometimes God says, I got to deflate your sails before you fly off the planet here. And suffering has a way of doing that. It knocks us down a notch or two and shows us our humanity a little bit. And sometimes suffering causes us to seek and submit to the Lord's intervention. A lot of times for some of us in this room, maybe the way you came to Christ was through a very, very hard time or difficult. And that's what it took. I know we're all different. God gets our attention and draws us all differently. But for some of us, the way we came to Jesus was through a very difficult time and that's just what finally made us look to the Lord. And I think suffering also even helps us work through perspective here and now. You see, the key in suffering, what Paul's saying in verse 18, is that we don't lose perspective. And let me bring to your attention a reminder. Paul was familiar with both. He's not saying these things just spiritual platitudes. I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, write in your notes 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 12. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul describes in quite a log his personal sufferings. There's quite a list. He endured quite a bit of suffering, probably more than a few of us in this room combined will ever experience. So Paul was familiar with personal suffering. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes how he also was familiar with coming glory in a legitimate way. One of very few people, Paul talks of being caught up in a vision to heaven's glory. So Paul was exposed in some way. He saw a preview of coming attractions. So Paul was somewhat aware of both of these. He could adequately consider them. And Paul says, as I thought through the comparison of these two things, his conclusion, verse 18, he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time, trust me, are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. His conclusion, it's not even proper to put these two things on the same scale together. Paul says the hardships, the trials, the difficulties, they don't even come close to having the right to be compared to the glory that really does await us and what God has in store for us in heaven. Now, I understand it doesn't diminish the fact that suffering is still difficult. It's hard to process. It's a very painful and grievous thing to endure in this life. Paul's just saying in relation to what's coming, what will not be for a season, but forever, he says, just the two don't even fit on the scale together. He says they don't, even, they don't even belong on the same scale. The coming experience is going to be so glorious that even the worst of all human suffering, he says, it does not even touch the incredible, immense experience of all the glory that heaven provides. So as we seek to understand more, which we should, of the eternal glory that awaits us, what that does for us, the Bible is teaching us, is it helps us maintain a healthy perspective as we endure suffering now, because suffering's unavoidable, can't avoid it. But what we can do is help us to have an issue of perspective to handle suffering. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we're hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
He then declares verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Again, it's a perspective. If I can illustrate it this way, let's say you were going to fly across country and you had to choose between two different airlines to fly across country and both of them had an advertisement. They both wanted you to get on board with them and you have to get over to the other side. So one airline's solicitation and explanation say, look, if you fly with us and you get on board, we assure you the most comfortable seats you've ever experienced. We will do everything possible to accommodate your needs, your selfish pleasures and desires. We'll do everything possible to give you an incredible trip. There will be no turbulence. It will be an absolutely smooth flight. However, the one thing we need to inform you is we have never yet had one plane land safely. Okay? How about you? What are you offering over here? Well, listen, we'll be honest. If you get on board with us, the seats are kind of cramped. There's going to be people around you hacking and coughing with bad breath. It's going to be miserable. There'll probably be babies crying in the cabin with you. Uh, you know, there's, there's probably usually always turbulence. In fact, it seems the weather pattern shows that this trip's going to be particularly turbulent. You may even feel a bit nauseated, uncomfortable, uh, but we assure you a safe and a smooth landing at your destination. Now, which flight would you choose? I say that as a spiritual illustration to remind us of this. Jesus did not promise a perfectly smooth flight. He didn't. It's heretical that even among the ranks of Christianity, that is trying to be propagated to people. Jesus did not anywhere promise a perfectly smooth flight, but he did assure a safe and a smooth landing at a glorious destination. Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I spoke unto you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am you may be also. Jesus promised that glorious destination and a safe landing there. And for some of you here this morning, right now, and in the recent season, you've been enduring some sufferings. You've been struggling through some things, and it's hard, and it hurts. And perhaps it would do your soul well this morning, or maybe this afternoon, to pause, like Paul here, to just really weigh it out and consider the suffering you're enduring now, but realizing in comparison to the glory ahead. No comparison. Absolutely no comparison. And maybe one benefit to the fact that you are suffering right now is maybe it's made you become a little more aware of spiritual and eternal realities. Maybe it's a gift in disguise. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're struggling and you're still deciding if you want to follow Jesus Christ, you know what? The most painful, hard, and difficult things you go through your life, maybe the greatest gift... Because if it causes you to humble yourself and to think about eternal, weighty, spiritual matters because of what you're struggling through temporarily, that's a gift. That's a gift from the Lord. Now look what Paul goes on to say, verse 19 through 21. 
He says, for the earnest expectation of the creation, all created order, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, the idea is not as it chose to, but because of him, someone else, who subjected it in this hope that the creation itself would be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So what Paul's doing here is he remembers that his suffering was not an isolated issue and it wasn't just a personal experience. What he's stating here is he realized that suffering really is a global experience. It's a global problem. These verses, verse 19 through 21, they seem somewhat wordy. They basically describe for us, in essence, how all of creation is suffering under the curse of sin and this present fallen condition. Therefore, creation, too, longs for the coming day when it, too, will be liberated from the curse of sin and the condition that it's now in. In verse 20 there, he describes creation's current condition by saying that the creation has been subjected to futility by someone who has subjected it to that condition. So he's describing there what happened in Genesis chapter 3. How remember when Adam, as a steward of God's creation, chose to rebel against God, he chose to disobey God, and sin entered into the world. Adam brought the curse of sin upon humanity, but not just upon humanity, but the effects of sin's influence also came into the world and its destructive effects came upon all of created order, meaning plant life. Now under the curse of sin, the Bible teaches. The animal kingdom, all the systems of nature, all of created order now is suffering the effects of the curse of sin, not just humanity alone. And it says that God himself has subjected it. In a judicial sense, God subjected all the created order to the curse of sin. Notice it says was subjected to futility, Paul says there in our verse. That word futility means purposelessness or emptiness. When you look at the language, it indicates there something that's not measuring up to its original created purpose or design. It's now become purposeless. It's lost its sense of its original purpose and intention. Important to remember, everything in all of creation now, and it's a pretty amazing planet that we live upon, but everything in creation now though beautiful and incredibly complex, really is the broken version. This is the fallen condition. This is a failing condition compared, here's the thing, to what God originally intended when he first created everything in the created order. That is why there are animals that are aggressive and predatorial. That's why there are animals who are harmful and hurtful and deadly and there's disharmony among the species because God subjected all of the created order to the futility and the curse of sin. That's why nature and climate, though it can be wonderful, is it not true? It also can become one of the most deadly and destructive things that we experience on this planet. That's why everything in all the created universe, really, if you study it uh, scientifically, is ultimately breaking down. It's deteriorating. It's what we call entropy. Everything ultimately is declining and failing. He says, verse 21, that creation is actually under, he says, verse 21, the bondage, enslavement to corruption. Again, the reason is because God has judicially subjected it to that corrupted condition. God judicially has put it under the curse. 
That meaning this, as a sidelight, noble as environmental efforts are, and those who are tree huggers, and it's all about nature and Mother Earth, who seems to be really frustrated and unhappy. She's a very unhappy mother. And noble as the efforts are, listen, I think we should be good stewards, but noble as all those efforts are to fix creation and so forth, and it's all destined to fail. It's all destined not to work, not because we can't come up with smart enough solutions, but until God lifts the subjection to corruption and bondage, it's never going to work. Now, the reality is ultimately one day there's coming a time when it will all be liberated by God. That's what he's describing there in verse 21. He says the creation itself will, look, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation will one day be delivered from its enslavement to the curse of sin that's resting upon it, but it will be by God and on God's timetable. And it will happen, it says, in direct connection, notice, to the glorious liberation of the children of God, indicating when does it happen? Indicating it's tied to the return of Jesus. That's what it's talking about here to us. That it will be tied to that directly. Again, if we think, I hate to use these kind of terms, but eschatologically, referring to end time events, what the Bible teaches us is that after the removal of the church, when we are what we call raptured or caught away to be with the Lord in heaven, that after that takes place, there's coming a time often referred to as the tribulation. And if you study the tribulation of the Bible, it's clear that that seven-year period of tribulation is marked by great cataclysmic destruction and devastation on this physical planet that's going to take place. The Bible speaks how devastation beyond human comprehension is going to happen on this planet and to this physical planet in which we now live upon. And that's going to then culminate in the return of Jesus with his saints to come back and establish his kingdom for a thousand years to reign in righteousness on this earth. And then beyond that period, then the heavenly new Jerusalem where we dwell with the Lord forever. But the Bible indicates, and here's the key, that part of all that, part of all this, is that God himself is going to ultimately discard of this present physical creation and you might say, going to, in a sense, begin afresh. The Bible teaches in both Old and New Testament these principles. Let me read you some verses. Second Peter 3 says this, The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both the earth and all the works that are in it will be burned up. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So it appears there is coming what we might call, and I use the terms loosely, what we might call a restored version of the original creation of what once originally existed. And we will somehow get to dwell in and experience that together with the Lord. Now, there is discussion, which I don't want to enter into this morning, of how that will actually happen and at what stages in the timetables. The main issue for us this morning is this. It's going to take place. It is going to happen. 
And it's something that as Christians, we're going to get to participate in that glorious experience of this new heavens and new earth. Isaiah describes conditions somewhat this way. Listen to what Isaiah 11 says. He says, the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. You hear that? A leopard lying down with a young goat. The only time right now a leopard lies down with a young goat is if the goat is in the leopard's belly. Okay, these two don't lie down together as buddies, the idea is. Something's going to change. There's a harmony, a peace among the animal kingdom. It says, uh, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by a cobra's hole. And the wean child shall put his hand inside a viper's den. The idea is that the poisonous viper won't bite the child. There's no threat. There's no danger. There's no harm. They shall hurt nor destroy no more. Again, restored harmony among the animal kingdom. Things are peaceful. Things are safe. There's not hurt and destruction and devastation that we see now in, in this created order. God has subjected it in a future hope. And even as creation's fall was tied together with the fall of man. Notice the Bible showing us so also the liberation of creation from the curse is tied together with mankind's liberation at the second coming of Christ. This is what Paul's saying to us. Look back with me in verse 19. He says, The earnest expectation of the creation is it's eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. So Paul here personifies creation as longing and looking ahead for the day of when the revealing of the sons of God happens. The idea is when the sons of God are, are sort of uh, you know, presented as these are my genuine children. That coming day of the revealing of the sons of God. And that is going to happen, the Bible teaches officially, when Jesus returns. And we are presented as the children of God and as his followers when Jesus powerfully does that, knowing that that day will mark the onset of what we might say the restored creation and the liberation of the curse of creation. Right now, creation, Paul personifies it. He says right now, all the created order suffering under the curse is in earnest expectation eagerly waiting for the day of the revealing of the sons of God because it knows that's its liberation day too. Interesting, when you look at the language here that Paul uses, earnest expectation, eagerly waiting, it's language in the Greek that speaks of standing on one's tiptoes and the idea is trying to strain your neck out to see what's ahead. So if you're a short person like myself, you're in a crowd and there's a stage up in front of you and you want to see, did the person, did the star show up? Did the stage, you know, did the show begin? And you, so you're, you're kind of doing this because you want to see, did it actually? Ha and he says, that's what creation's doing. It's looking, it's longing, waiting for that coming day of the revealing of God's sons when it will be liberated from what it's suffering under. Look with me, verse 22. He also going on to personify creation says, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors, Paul says, with birth pangs together until now. So he personifies creation as actually groaning in pain longing to be set free and, and wanting that birth of a new day ahead when it will be delivered and restored from its suffering in its condition of corruption under the curse of sin. Now back in verse 18, 
Remember, Paul referred to our personal sufferings as human beings, and he now returns to that subject in verse 3, going on to say not only that, not only is creation groaning, but we also who are suffering, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So again, what's the Spirit of God doing within us? Another thing he's doing within the believer is causing a very natural and continual longing, a yearning, a groaning within for that glorious future ahead. Paul says we groan within ourselves for the redemption of our body. Now notice a few things here with me in verse 23, that there is a, you could say, final stage of the spiritual adoption process that still needs to happen. He refers to it in verse 23, that final stage of the adoption is the redemption of our body. When we receive the final phase of God's spiritual adoption, we receive a redeemed body. The Bible says when this mortal puts on immortality so that we then enter in to the presence of God. Again, if we can illustrate, if you think of, for example, an international adoption process, it's a process. Uh, you prepare paperwork, decisions are made to do it, uh, there are necessary terms that are stipulated, uh, there's fees that are paid, there are arrangements that are made, but then there's still always, is there not, that one last step, the final phase, where you would then go abroad and pick up that child and bring that child home to dwell with you in your house, in that new relationship. And can you imagine... In essence, how that parent and child feels when they're longing for that final step. And they know all the arrangements have been made. They know it's a done deal, but how they both, parent and child, would long for that final phase where they can actually be together permanently and live together, in a sense, in a greater way. Well, that's sort of the idea spiritually here. This is what Paul's saying to us. This is sort of the same idea. We are still eagerly waiting that last final step of the spiritual adoption when we receive a redeemed, glorified body and we get to go home and be in the presence of the Lord. We saw in our verses last week that when we get saved, we receive the Holy Spirit and the Bible called him what? The spirit of adoption. So you could basically say this morning, as a Christian, if you're born again and you're a saved and a child of God, that the spiritual adoption process began and so your spirit is redeemed. Your spirit is redeemed, you now possess eternal life, yet the problem, and here's where the struggle inwardly comes, is you still live in a fallen temporal body, plagued with sickness and struggles and being on this planet. So as a result of that, there's a yearning within for that final phase. That final phase of the adoption when you get a glorified body, when our body will be redeemed and transformed in that final step. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. This is what he means here in verse 23 about eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And he says, it was at salvation, the spirit was given to us as an assurance of this, as a guarantee. That's what he means, verse 23, when he says, we who have the first fruits of the spirit are those who are groaning for that adoption, the redemption of our body. The idea of the first fruits there, a farmer's first fruits was the initial 
part of the crop that came in, but those first fruits were really sort of a first installment. It was a foretaste of the promise that there's still more coming, that there's still more coming ahead. And this is the idea spiritually. The spirit of God's presence and ministry within us now is just a small foretaste of what's still coming ahead, ultimately being in the presence of God literally experientially one day there in heaven. Ephesians 1 says, In him you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So there in Ephesians 1, Paul says the Holy Spirit was given to you as a Christian sort of as a down payment. The Spirit of God is God's down payment. He deposits His Spirit within you and He says, this is my down payment that I'm going to finish the transaction that I started in you. Another way of looking at Ephesians 1 there, the idea of the language indicates it's like the engagement ring. You give someone an engagement ring to say, look, I love you, I'm making a commitment to you and I plan on finishing and following through with this commitment and ultimately making you completely one with me that we might dwell together. And Jesus is saying, my spirit, I've given you my spirit in your life, the most precious thing I have to assure you, I'm going to finish what I started in you. And I'm going to bring you home to dwell with me forever. Basically, our spirit is now prepared with eternal life, but the struggle is this inward groaning because we still live in a fallen body. And that's what makes us groan. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5, and I encourage you to familiarize yourself with that passage because there Paul describes how in this tent we groan, we long to be out of this body and to receive our new glorified eternal body. And isn't this true? Isn't it not true that we find ourselves groaning within, as, maybe as your health is failing, and you're dealing with a struggling body and your body's breaking down and you're, just, you're groaning within in your spirit because you're longing for the day when you can get set free from that body that's failing, that becomes like a prison in many ways as we age and as health issues begin to happen. We groan, long for that new body. We groan in grief and concern, don't we, as we live on this earth and we see what's happening around us. I find myself groaning, groaning because I realize this is not what God intends and I long for what ultimately is going to be the experience of eternity. I groan and I see people suffering and I watch you struggling and, and there's a groaning within. You just, there's a yearning within. Lord, come quickly. Alleviate this. Bring an end to this. Well, look how Paul concludes verse 25. He says, but if we hope, excuse me, verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but a hope that's not seen, or excuse me, hope that is seen is not hope. It's not hope if you're not already seeing it. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we don't yet see what we have, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So what Paul's saying here is our present experience is living now with a sense of hope and a sense of faith. And when the Bible speaks of hope, Christian hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. That's biblical hope. Not I hope so. It's, no, it's, it's, it's an anchored assurance. The absolute expectation of coming good. And faith is not living by what we see with our eyes, but faith is a confident dependence upon what's not seen and trusting, though I don't see it, I'm confident it's going to come to pass. 
I choose to believe that it will take place. And the Bible says that we are to now, Titus 2, be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says here in these verses, we were actually saved in that hope. The idea is that when God saved us, he gave us a sense of inner hope at salvation. We didn't receive the whole eternal package at once, but he actually purposely gave us something to keep looking forward to, to keep hoping for. Why? Because he knew it was going to be hard going through this life. So he's given us something to anchor our soul somewhere so that as we struggle, we can live with a sense of faith and anticipation and hope so that we can endure and persevere and keep going in the hardest times. And how wonderful is a child of God to possess faith and to have hope. We live in a world where so many people struggle like we do and they live in fear and doubt of what's going to happen or what's never going to happen. As Christians, we struggle like everybody else in challenges and hardships, but so many people who don't know Jesus go through that with a sense of hopelessness. And so Christians, we have a hope. And it's that hope that's like an antidote for our soul that helps us. He says here, wait with perseverance, which means it gives us the grace, that hope within, to realize that one day there's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more suffering. There's going to be no more funerals to go through, no more death, no more dying one day. And somehow that gives us the grace to have perseverance through the hard times and the difficulties without losing heart and giving up. You know, this is a poor illustration, but yesterday I was invited to um, attend a birthday party of a good friend, which basically included uh, this really fast go-kart racing at the Millville Speedway. Uh, and it was a big boy party because all adults and, and it seemed really like an, an exciting thing to go to. And, and these things go like 40 to 50 miles an hour. So I went to this thing with a sense of anticipation. This is going to you know, be a really fun time and driving around this. And it, I mean, and this is like, you don't just drive around a track. I mean, it's all kinds of fast turns and you're going super fast. So we begin to do it. You go through a practice uh, portion at first and then ultimately, according to your practice runs, they then put you in a position according to your times uh, and you actually get to race, a 16-lap race afterwards. Well, I, of course, ended up in last, no surprise. Uh, and, and then when we got into course, because now I'm in last, now my boyhood you know, competitive thing takes over a little bit. So I thought, gosh, I'm in last. That's really, it's pretty lame, you know. Uh, but Rick had said to me, look, you got to preach tomorrow. Please don't die. Just, I'm not prepared to fill in. So I thought, okay, I got to find a balance there. So long story short, you know, it's freezing cold yesterday. 30 degrees, you're 40 to 50 miles an hour, your fingertips are hurting, I was like, oh, my fingers are hurting, and then, you know, and if you remember a couple months, or a couple months back, my, my back spasmed real bad, and, and my back was starting to tighten up, and I could feel the spasm thing coming, uh, and then, I totally forgot, I have a real issue with motion sickness, you ask my parents when we used to drive in cars, and driving real super fast, and, you know, and doing that, and, and I'm wearing a helmet with a mask that comes down in front and the motion sickness by about the sixth lap on that last race. Oh, man, I was, I was thinking, oh, my goodness. I'm going to spray inside. And when we go around, there was always a pit stop where you could pull in. And every time I go by that pit stop, I was thinking, man, I want to pull in there so bad. My back's about to blow up. And my fingers are hurting and I'm going to spew in this shield and this mask. And, 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 but I, I kept telling myself, a few more laps. A few more laps. I know that this ends. A few more laps. A few more laps. 
And I'm going to at least finish. And you know what? This morning, maybe you're hurting. And maybe you are as sick as can be of living on this earth. And maybe there's been a lot of twists and turns and things you didn't expect. And it's getting hard. And it's getting difficult. Listen. A few more laps. A few more laps. There is an end to this race. You persevere. You keep going. Jesus is with you. It's going to be worth it when you cross the finish line.